Hello, welcome to the podcast of Grace Fellowship Church Shrewsbury. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. in Southern York County, Pennsylvania. You can join our morning live stream on Facebook or YouTube. Just search for GFC Shrewsbury. You can find more information about us at gfcshrewsbury.org. We are so excited to bring you this message today, and it is our hope that you will come to know and believe Jesus Christ more fully through it. Amen. Can we give it up for our worship team one time, one time, one time? I hope that you uh, know, acknowledge, and appreciate that. Uh, For the people that get up on this stage and sing and worship, it's not something that they just do Sunday from, you know, 8 a.m. to about noon, and then they go and live the rest of their lives. They they worship with their lives. They worship like this in their homes. They worship uh, like this with other people. Um, So when they get up here, that's the reason it's so authentic. That's the reason it it can impact us the way that it does, because it's way more than uh, a rock band. It's way more than just lights and, uh, you know, dimmers so that it creates a mood. Uh, It's authentic spiritual worship. Um, But my name is Phil Cook. Everybody say hi, Phil. Hi, Hi, friends. I love y'all so much. This is my Grace family. When I say that, I mean it, all right? Because when you find a church that you can call home, it is a beautiful, 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 beautiful times infinity thing. Anybody say amen? Uh Uh-huh. Uh, I have to do a couple quick announcements. All right. (laughs) Just kidding. This one's exciting. So, Summer Grove, I believe we announced it last week for the first time. Um, But on June 13th, so that's next month, second Sunday of next month, we are doing a single service at Summit Grove. So if you remember over the summer, how many of y'all came to our, like, COVID summer Summit Groves? Weren't those awesome? Come on, we got back to it, and I'd be willing to bet, in fact, I know a few of you that are here in this room because you came to those because there was no other options, and you were like, oh my gosh, this is amazing, I'm never leaving, (laughs) and you're still here, so that's really, really cool. But June 13th, mark your calendars, it's a single service at 10 a.m., get this, afterwards, we are just going to have a Grace family time where there's going to be food trucks, games, stuff to do, followed by baptisms. Come on, we're going to have some people get baptized up in the pool at Summit Grove. Jesus is already there, but we're bringing Jesus' people there too. All right, that's announcement number one. Second one's not really an announcement, it's an acknowledgement. This is pretty cool. Today we celebrate, who knows? Pentecost Sunday, yes, yes. So while we aren't gonna necessarily do a formal Pentecost message or whatever, we wanna acknowledge and celebrate as a family that today is the day that the traditional church celebrates Pentecost, the day of Pentecost. If you go back to Acts 2 and read chapter 2 in Acts, it talks about this mind-blowingly cool scene where Holy Spirit comes for the first time. And he comes powerfully and it describes it and Peter preaches his ball and message and 3,000 people get saved and the church is born And it's amazing we celebrate that today. So come on for Jesus and Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And how fitting of a week to acknowledge that as last week, what did Alex talk about? That Jesus was sent on mission to bring who? Holy Spirit. Now today we continue in our John series. But before we do that, I want to acknowledge another thing really quickly. Um, How many of my people in the room that were either students in attendance or my leaders that were part of the lock-in yesterday? Raise your hands. Where are my lock-in people? Boom, 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 boom. All all the young people sit over here apparently? All right. Got it. (laughs) Got it. Oh, wait, no, I see you, Nick. I see you, Nick. You're not. Hey, buddy. What's going on? Love you. Man, so if you don't know what a lock-in is, you don't want to know, all right? We don't sleep. We do crazy stuff for like 12 straight hours. So you've got leaders and young people in the room who Friday night got there to the church around 6 p.m. p.m. and then did craziness until 7 a.m. And the leaders were there even longer than that. And then yet a bunch of them are still in the room. Like talk about commitment. If you wonder if we love our young people here, there's your answer. All right. So just give it up for them. All right. I was just talking to Tara Farmer. And someone asked her, who's teaching this morning? And she's like, well, it surely isn't going to be Phil. (laughs) I told Ben, I was like, what are y'all doing to me? You want me to quit? Come on. Just kidding. I love you, Denny. I'm actually excited to be here. You know why? This This is so cool. 
I've found in my life that when we're the most tired and have the least to offer, God does the most. Uh huh. And the Bible tells us when we are weak, his strength is made more apparent. So we can believe God's going to do something awesome right now. How about it? So I'm going to pray and we're going to be in John chapter 8. So open up and let's talk to God. <laughs> Jesus, I thank you that your mercy and grace are new for us this morning. Uh, I, I just am confused by that at times, and, and you constantly have to remind me that your ways are higher than my ways as far as the heavens are from the earth, and that you love me and, and everyone in this room in a way that no one else has ever loved us or ever could love us. And I just thank you for that this morning. I don't know who needs to be reminded of God's mercy for them this morning, but I know that I do. And as we study your word today, I pray that you would have us leaving just infinitely more encouraged about just how merciful you are for us, just how loving and gracious you are for us, that we could never out-sin your grace because your grace is always more. So I thank you for that. I pray you would open our hearts, open our minds, and open our eyes to your truth today that we would walk out different via the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray all these things in all God's people said... Amen, come on now, amen, come on now, amen, amen, amen. Anybody in the room that was alive longer than me know what movie that's from? What? Nobody? Susan Henriksen Educated Me was a movie that came out in 1963, first time that that melody came out. I didn't know that. I already told you all the Guatemala story. Let's read John 8. (laughs) Open up if you would. Starting in verse 1, interestingly, just a little Bible history slash context. We're big on context here at Grace. We think if you don't know what you're reading as a contextual whole, we tend to confuse what we're reading. I think that's why we have a lot of like cultural misconceptions of what the Bible says about certain things because we just pluck stuff out and say this proves my point when really a lot of times it doesn't. So something that's interesting about this, and if you have your uh, study thingy, illuminated scriptural journal, which there are more out there. I encourage you to get one. It actually makes a note that the earliest manuscripts do not include John 7:53 through chapter 8, verse 11. Now, if you go back through like ancient manuscriptual studies, uh, as they piece this story together from different findings, uh, what they ended up doing in modern Bibles is they found that in the chronological order of these stories, this is where it would for sure fit, which is why in modern Bibles it's included, which I found really interesting. So let's read it. And I'll put it up on the screens as well for us, starting at the end of 53 into verse 1. They went then each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and sat down and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and (laughs) wrote with his finger on the ground. I always wonder which finger he wrote with. (laughs) And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground, but when they heard it, They went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up. Uh, In the NIV it says, Jesus straightened up. I like that. And said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I then condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This passage is really well known. I'd be willing to bet that if uh, you're in the room, you've read this, studied this, heard of the passage of the adulterous woman. The way we're going to talk about it today, I think, is slightly different than the way it's maybe normally seen. Uh, We call it the passage of the adulterous woman. What we're doing is kind of focusing on the sin. We're kind of focusing on what happens in this passage. We're going to talk about it slightly different, and I'll tell you why. I think this passage really points to who Jesus is, versus who we are. It, it, it focuses on how we react versus how Jesus reacts to things, how, how religion reacts to things versus how Jesus reacts to things, how the world tends to react to things versus how Jesus reacts to things. And I think Jesus here intentionally highlights the sin, the sin that at the time specifically would have been a significant deal, 
to actually point more significantly to the Savior. I think the emphasis, while we call this the passage of the adulterous woman, is far less on the sin, far more on the Savior. And I'm going to explain to you why I say that. The first point we're going to talk about, it comes out of verses 10 through the first half of 11. He says this, Jesus stood up, straightened up, and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And and Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. First point, where we condemn, Jesus extends mercy. Where we tend to condemn, where the world tends to condemn, where religion tends to condemn, Jesus models here the extension of mercy. There's a crowd of people here eagerly waiting to condemn this woman who's caught in something, and they even say, well, listen, like, hey, you claim you're the Messiah, right? You claim you're God. Well, God wrote this book, and this book says we should kill her. We should stone her. Yet Jesus here who not only, let's be clear, doesn't disagree with Scripture because he is actually the fulfillment of Scripture. He's actually the dude who penned it all. So clearly he doesn't disagree with Scripture. He says, okay, yeah, you're right. She does deserve to die. But even though it deserves punishment, the only person that can punish sin is someone who has never sinned themselves. So if you fit that mold, go ahead and throw a stone. Go ahead and chuck that thing, because you're right. She does deserve to die. Sin does deserve a punishment. So chuck that stone if you don't deserve punishment yourself. And what do they do? They start dropping their stones. Now, interestingly, and not so interestingly at the same time, because every word in Scripture is intentional, what does it tell us about the order of who dropped their stones? Oldest did it first. Why? We are stubborn, young people. Uh, old people, come on, you're seasoned people, anybody above the age of whatever you think is too old, say amen here. Young people think they know everything. We are convinced we know it all. Someone who's lived 50 years more, our parents who have just done it time and time again, we have the gall to go to them and try to tell them we know better than them. We are wild. The Bible knows what it's doing here. It literally, low-key Jesus is like, hey, this is a side note, young people, but like, listen for two seconds because you don't know anything. It says the older people dropped them first because they got it right away. They're like, oh, man, yeah, I can't. And then on top of that, they've also sinned more because they've lived longer. <laughs> so there's kind of a duality there, you know what I mean? You guys are wiser, but you've also sinned more, so I don't know. <laughs> The older people leaving first. Until everyone had walked away except for who? Jesus. Now, after she, this woman who's the kind of the focal point of this story, or at least who Jesus is uh, emphasizing, she had committed a sin. She had messed up majorly. So why was Jesus so quick to extend mercy where people, and specifically religious church people, were quick to condemn? How and why Was he so able to do this, maybe outside of that he's God, all right? We can't be God, so let's learn from him practically, okay? I want to put up a little uh, verbal exercise onto the screen, and as I say it, you're going to help me fill in the blanks, okay? So you're going to fill it in with what these things do. So we'll start with this. Hunters, golfers, sinners, well done, that was pretty good. I got this from Robert Morris, who's a pastor down in Texas at Gateway Church, and he said the first time he ever gave this analogy, he said, hunters, they all said hunt. Golfers, everybody said golf, except one lady in the front said lie. (laughs) 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 When will you be done, honey? Noon comes back at three. We all know how it goes. We're my golfers in the room, all right. Jess is like, I hate that my father-in-law gave you clubs. (sighs) Hunters hunt, golfers golf, sinner's sin. Why doesn't Jesus condemn the way that religious people tend to condemn the world, tend to go right to accusation? Is because, listen, he isn't surprised when we sin. Jesus could look at this woman who had done something arguably terrible, specifically at the time, because the law said to kill him. So physically, it was a bigger deal then, because there were bigger repercussions. And 
he isn't surprised. He, he doesn't condemn. He's quick to extend mercy. And I think one of the reasons is because he isn't surprised when sinners sin. We're doing what he already knew we were going to do. That's why he had to come. Let me, let me give you a visual example of this. So I've been to Guatemala twice. How many people in the room have been on any of the Guatemala missions trips? One of my Guatemala missionaries. Yeah, yeah, I like it. I like it. So I haven't gone with Grace before. I've told you this before. I've gone with a different group a couple different times. First time I ever went. Anybody, how about this? Anybody been to a third world country, period? Where my people? See, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I'd encourage you to do something to that effect. But we get there. Okay, it was like maybe 25 of us, 30 of us. We get on a rickety bus. I mean, this thing is made of, is made of plastic straws, I swear. And on top of that, it's like a 20-person bus, and there's like 50 of us on it. So I don't know what's going on. We start driving through Guatemala City. It's like a four-mile drive, 40-mile drive, four-hour drive. How many miles? I don't know because I couldn't focus on anything except not dying. And we're driving, and I'm telling y'all, and I'm not exaggerating, the roads there are crazy. Like, like they are swerving everywhere. They're all over the place. There's no, there might as well not be lane stop signs. There are no stop lights, so that's irrelevant. And I remember we were driving. We were pulling up to like, you know, a stop. It's like a three-lane road, and there's five cars and seven mopeds. I'm like, how does this, how does this doesn't make any sense? And I, I, as we're driving, we're on the edge of a cliff at one point. I literally thought we were going to fall off, and the dude is just cruising, no fear at all. And I made a comment to one of our leaders who was a Guatemalan native, like, dude, there's got to be so many accidents around here. Like, I mean, what is, the, what is the mortality rate just due to cars in this country? And he was like, actually, accidents are really, really low here. Like, there are very, very few accidents. And then he said a really interesting thing. He said, you want to know what country has the most per capita, we didn't say per capita, but <laughs> per capita accidents in the world? America. We have one of the most, if not the most, developed road systems in the world. I found this really interesting. In fact, I listened to a message about it. And, and I thought about it a little bit. Why? Over there, they don't expect you to stay in the lane. <laughs> Therefore, they're watching for you to not. <laughs> so if they see you coming over, they do a little skirt, boop, beep. They don't, even, they don't even honk. Like, I don't know how they do it. It's like a telekinetic 15 cents. Sense. In America, on the other hand, if someone even nears your lane, what do we do? <laughs> we tell them they're number one. <laughs> That's a phrase I saw from a pop-pop. We, we get up, we speed up, just look at them funny. We're like, you. <laughs> then we're almost hitting other people. We don't realize we became the driver we hated. We drive arguably way better, way more controlled, way more regimented, yet we have way more accidents. Why? We're not expecting people to come out of their lane, therefore we're not looking for it. Now, let's back up a second. Jesus expects us to sin because sinners sin, therefore he extends mercy. People in your lives that are quick to give grace, quick to give mercy, people you're like, really? That person did this and you still went over to their house and you know, bought them a car? If you did that, I need one. I don't, actually. He expects sinners to sin. For people who don't expect something like that, when it happens, we're all the more shocked, all the more caught off guard, all the more angry, all the more like trying to speed up, look at them and tell them what they did with our eyes. Jesus understands who we are and what we're going to do. Therefore, he's postured to give us more mercy. When we aren't expecting of sinners to be sinful, sinners, which we all are, to fail us, when they do, we're much less postured to extend mercy, much more postured to extend anger or condemnation because we weren't prepared. Jesus was constantly postured in a way that he understood who we are and what we're going to do. Therefore, when it happened, he was quick to extend mercy. What about you? I think the issue really isn't that other people are bad drivers. It's our expectations. Bad expectations breed bad results. When we expect things that aren't realistic, we will get bad results from those bad expectations. Jesus did not expect humans to not be sinful. Therefore, when they sinned, he wasn't surprised. He could love them in the moment, regardless of how they acted. He had a good expectation. It led to a good result. What are our expectations of others? But then the question might be, okay, well then how? 
I, I want to be someone who extends mercy because clearly where we condemn people, Jesus extends mercy, and I want to be like Jesus. How do I extend mercy better? I think there's a pretty simple answer. We allow our brokenness to keep us humble. We allow our own brokenness to keep us humble. Now, here's what I'm not saying with that. We don't dwell on our mistakes. We don't dwell on our past. We don't let guilt and shame build up because that has no place in a believer's life, right? But also, we understand how broken we are in the view of the picture of how perfect God is. And because of that, it keeps us at ground level so that when other people are there with us, we treat them just like we would want to be treated ourselves. It's the golden rule. What did the Pharisees do, though? Let's use them as our example. They were so high and mighty on what they had accomplished and how much scripture they knew and their stature and their position in the church and maybe how much money they made or all the decisions they thought they had done right or wrong or whatever, that they took all those things, lost view of how broken they were, so then when a broken person come to them, it felt like they were below. And Jesus didn't do that. The only person who could have been up here chose not to be because he postured himself humbly. The Bible says that he came as a humble servant. He postured himself humbly so that he could be ready, postured, and willing to give mercy rather than condemnation. And to be someone who tends to condemn is not the heart of God. In fact, look at the Pharisees. One more thing about them. Not only were they trying to condemn this woman quickly, what does it say like one verse after? It says that they were doing this. They asked Jesus this question, why? To trap him and find something, it says in the NIV, to accuse him of. How often do we do that? Let me follow up with this question. Who does the Bible call the accuser? Is that who we want to be? Is that who we want to be? People who are so quick to condemn, so quick to judge. So, and just to be clear, there's room to judge. That, that's something we get wrong in the church. The Bible is clear there's room to judge. Two weeks ago, Mark talked about right judgment, right? But we're so quick to condemn, so quick to be angry, so quick to cast these downward views of people it actually like, implies we're, we're operating for the wrong team when we act like that. So many of us, I think, can tend to relate to this. I know in my own life, there's, there's one day I'm great at this, <laughs> and then the next day, everybody just makes me mad. You know what I'm saying? Everybody, you woke up on the wrong side of the bed, didn't get your coffee in on time, and everybody is the worst person in the world. What's it look like for us to stop maybe operating that way because Jesus did the opposite. He was so loving, so merciful, so gracious to this woman, even though she had messed up because he knows us and like a good father, he knew we would mess up. I know my kids are gonna mess up. It still makes me mad sometimes. But not God, not God. He's perfect and he knows we're gonna mess up. Therefore, he's ready to offer mercy. So I'm gonna ask you guys a question in the room. Have you trusted that Jesus doesn't condemn you? I think there's probably a lot of people in this room who, who live in some level, a little bit or a lot of it, or have gone through seasons of this, that we live in shame and guilt of, of maybe actions that we've had or things that have happened to us or feeling like we're not good enough or feeling like because of what we've done or who we are, God looks down at us and he's shaking his head at us. And how could he, how could he love this? Or maybe how could he love them? And we think these things and it's because we're buying the lie of condemnation over mercy. This woman was caught in the act. She was at the lowest of the low. She had every reason to be condemned, every reason to be shamed, every reason to be embarrassed, every reason to feel guilty. Yet Jesus says what? Woman, where are your accusers? Because there's only one accuser, and it's surely not me. And she says, no one, sir. Okay, then neither do I condemn you. Do you know he's speaking that over you? The person in the room who, who feels condemned, feels guilty, feels embarrassed, didn't even feel comfortable coming in here this morning. And he just whispers, where are your accusers? I'm the only one who could condemn you, and guess what? I don't. And, and I want to invite uh, Michelle Barshinger up, because she is going to give us a, a, a real-life testimony of what this looks like in our life. So if you would, give it up for Michelle. logistics hi oh. check check hello 
Hello. You just want to talk really close to my face the whole time? No. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Here, try it now. Check, check. Oh, hello. Really loud. Hi. It's the magic. <laughs> All right. That was good. I needed that to kind of break the ice. All right. <sighs> so I want to ask you a question. Have you ever felt hopeless? Were you ever caught in a seemingly endless cycle of behavior that continued to bring pain to your life? And there just didn't seem to be a way out. I found myself in that place many years ago. I was fully submerged in yet another toxic and destructive relationship with no way out. Such a familiar place for me, and yet by that time, I just couldn't take it anymore. I was hopeless and I was helpless. And in desperation, I begged God for death. I would cry myself to sleep, and I would ask God to please stop the pain. I was trapped in a cycle of abusive relationships with men, relationships which always began from my desperate search to be loved and ended with me being used and neglected and devastated. Mm. I had no idea at that time why. I had no idea how or even what was going on. I just knew that my life hurt really bad, and I wanted it to stop. So I threw myself in front of Jesus, and I literally cried out for help. And his answer, it wasn't to grant me death. Rather, his answer was an invitation to wholeness. Mm. I found out that what was plaguing me and my life, what was embedded deep within my heart and driving all of my choices and thoughts was shame. Mm -hmm. Shame is insidious. It hides within those painful circumstances of our life, and it takes hold of our belief system, and it offers us lies and thoughts that are so frequent and so fitting that we welcome it without even knowing. And for me, shame felt like something was wrong with me, like I was, a mark, like I was marked deep within with a blackened heart. I felt ugly and dirty. I felt guilty and unlovable and unacceptable. And while it was birthed in me from childhood trauma, it was birthed from father issues, abandonment issues, and even sexual abuse, shame grew with each one of those relationships that I tried to find my validation in. The more I tried to cover up my or ease my feelings of worthlessness or ugliness by giving myself to another man, the more I experienced rejection and abandonment and neglect. And the more I felt rejected and abandoned and neglected, then the greater my feelings of shame. And so the greater my feelings of shame, the more I wanted to find ways to try to numb it again. Shame sounded like this in my life. See, you're nothing. You're nobody. You deserve it. You deserve all the pain that you're getting. You can't do anything right. You're worthless, and no one wants you. You're just too much, and you're too needy, and you'll never be loved, and you're just a burden, so keep quiet and go away. Those self-hating phrases looped in my mind continuously throughout my days, and I believed them. I believed them. So I did try to hide. I did try to keep quiet because shame always makes us want to hide. I mean, think about Adam and Eve and the garden and the fig leaves and God. In fact, if I had to describe what shame looks like, that's how I would describe it, hiding, cowering, covering from God and others, because I felt guilty and dirty, and there goes my first page, but I already read that, so that's all right. No because shame. I felt um, like something was wrong. Oh, wait, nope. See, I'm all flustered now. Okay. There you Thank go. you. There is nothing to be ashamed of because I haven't gotten to the good part yet. I'm going to talk about Jesus. <laughs> because I felt guilty and dirty, I did not want to lift my eyes or look at anyone. 
Face-to-face encounters with people were absolutely terrifying for me. So my, my eyes and my head were always down. If I was seen, I was afraid I'd be exposed, and I was afraid I'd be judged. And then I'd be condemned as the worthless woman that I felt like I was. I just really couldn't handle to look at people because I couldn't stand the thought that they were going to reject me, and I couldn't bear the pain of the disgust that I thought I would see in their eyes. And so I wonder if that woman who was caught in adultery, I wonder if she felt that way too. Shame-filled circumstances thrust her literally to the feet of Jesus. She was naked and exposed and vulnerable, and her sins and her shame were on display for all to see. And I'm sure she wanted to hide. I'm sure she was just waiting for that judgment and that condemnation to come. But a lot happened there at the feet of Jesus. Mm -hmm. She got far less than what she thought and far more than what she deserved. Mm -hmm. And I get it because a lot happened to me there too. Back when I threw myself in front of Jesus and I cried out for help and I hoped for death and instead he gave me an invitation to wholeness, my life changed too. Not instantly, but gradually over time because I was compelled to stay there For the same reason as this adulterous woman, Jesus lavished me with acceptance, not criticism. He welcomed me with forgiveness, not condemnation. He overwhelmed me with his tender, knowing compassion when I expected disgust and rejection. His mercy and his grace and his love were like mighty rushing waters on a very, very dry and weary soul. Jesus did bring all my sin to light. He exposed absolutely every pain-filled and shame-filled memory, and he let me watch as he covered every single one with his blood. Yeah. Thank you, Jesus. Mm Mm-hmm. There with Jesus, my cycle of shame and pain and numbing and more shame finally came to an end because I discovered that he alone is so completely satisfying and so completely fulfilling that nothing or no one else can ever come close to filling my heart like he can. Jesus taught me. Yeah, he deserves it. Jesus taught me that relationship and love are designed by him to be a blessing and not a curse. He's been fixing all of my misbeliefs about him, about myself, and about others, and I got a hog's load of them. My self-hating thoughts are being replaced by his words of love and truth, and here with Jesus, I'm finally able to lift my head and to be seen and to be known. And for the first time in my life, I have hope. And it's all because of his grace. It's all because his massive and mind-boggling love compelled me to stay right there at his feet. So I don't know where you are in your life. I don't know if you're caught in an endless cycle of pain like I was. I don't know if you have those self-defeating behaviors that you keep um, participating in over and over again. I don't know if you feel worthless or guilty or unloved. Maybe you're hiding. Maybe you're cowering. Maybe you're covering too. Wherever you are, can I just tell you, get to Jesus, please. Circumstances beyond your control may even right now at this moment be thrusting you to the feet of Jesus. Wherever and however you have to get there, please just get there because Jesus has an invitation for wholeness for you as well. Is there not anything better than hearing what God has done in someone's life? Do you know what Revelation says about testimony? It says, by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, we overcome. And you know what's amazing about that? And, and I haven't even heard all that story till some of it right now. <laughs> is that she couldn't look people in the eyes and just talked about Jesus to 500 people. That's change. That's something only God does. That's confidence and boldness that only the Holy Spirit brings 
And we're so thankful that Jesus works that in all of us, but in you, Michelle. So thank you for that. Can we give it up one more time for her? Uh, well, what days are women's ministry, by the way? What days are your women's ministry? Thursdays, study and share, 10 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. And then a gathering on June 11th. She's amazing and she runs it. So if you're a lady and you need that type of energy in your life, be there. Thursdays, just show up all day. All right. <laughs> Michelle, that'll be $15. <laughs> I think there's probably people in the room right now that God just talked directly to you. Accept it, embrace it, and realize that that picture right there is what Jesus wants for you in your life. But maybe you're also in the room, and I want to ask one more question, because maybe you're not quite there. You haven't walked through a ton of shame and, and guilt, but maybe you're on the other end of it. You don't necessarily struggle with accepting the mercy of God onto your life. You struggle with giving it to others. So let me ask you a second question. Who do you need to extend mercy to in your life? Who have you been condemning when a correct reflection of Jesus is to extend mercy Maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a sibling, a friend, maybe it's someone who's hurt you, maybe it's someone you disagree with. Or, or maybe you think you do this well, like, like, hey, yeah, my Christian brothers and sisters, my circles, whatever, we're, yeah, we're loving, we're gracious, we're good. Okay, uh, first of all, awesome. Let me ask you one more question. How about the world? H how, are you, how do you view the world right now? Let me just fill in some blanks. Politics, school systems, media, media and news, celebrities, national and local government. Are you quick to extend mercy to them? Because the world hasn't been quick to extend mercy to many people in those types of scenarios. When mercy, Jesus says here, is what changes them. Who have you been quick to judge, condemn, or accuse when our first instinct as Jesus-loving, Jesus-led people should always be mercy. Otherwise, listen, otherwise, when we aren't people who extend mercy quickly, we condemn people we don't agree with, we condemn people who we think are doing it all wrong, it says less about them, more about you. Because we're called to a standard, they're not. Check out this point here. What the world needs to experience from us is what this woman experienced from Jesus. Think about your own life right now. Again, your circles, your people, the people you disagree the most with. You know, if you, if you sit deeply in a political camp, who's on the other side of it? Your school systems, the people you've just bickered with nonstop, that family member that you two just cannot even say one word without not getting along. You know, the minute you say the, you're fighting. You're laughing because some of y'all got them, some of you are them. <laughs> That person, are they experiencing from you what this woman experienced from Jesus? Who do you maybe need to extend mercy to a little quicker? Because religious people are quick to condemn while Jesus is quick to extend mercy. Next point we're going to talk about comes out of verses 8 or verses 7 through 9 and then the end of the passage it says this as they continue to ask him he stood up and said to them let who, him who is without sin among you be there to throw the first stone but once more he bent down and wrote on the ground and when they heard it they went away one by one beginning with the older ones because us young people are the worst and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him they continue and at the very end he says and from now on sin no more the NIV says leave your life of sin second thing Jesus models here where we've failed Jesus sets the standard where we've failed, Jesus sets the standard. I love this because Jesus models almost this exact type of interaction over and over and over and over again. So when we study it, we can see the heart of God because he's constantly displaying his heart through his actions. That is for another day. But can I tell you something? The way you act towards people means a lot more than what you say. But Jesus acknowledges the failure here. He does this all the time. He never ignores the sin. Like, we do got to be careful with that overly grace-filled Christianity. There's no such thing as too much grace, but there is abuse of grace. Romans 6, 1 and 2, just check that out. But he always acknowledges the sin. He always says, like, yeah, this is here. 
And he actually, in this passage, even says like pretty much like, yeah, you're right, this does deserve punishment. The law does say she should die. He, he sees it, the failure, but then he does this. He tells anyone who has never sinned, never failed, cast the first stone. And I love this phrase. It says, until only Jesus was left. They walked away one by one, young, dumb people first, <laughs> old, wise people last. And then it says, only until only Jesus was left what was he saying? He's like, listen, y'all, listen, religious people, listen quick to condemners, listen, world. He says, I'm the only one who could condemn you. So like, go ahead and throw a stone if you're the one who can do this. Go ahead and throw the stone if you're the standard for perfection. If you've never messed up, go ahead. You have the rightful like choice then to hurl a stone at her noggin. Yet they walked away one by one and he's saying, I'm the only one that can do that because I am the standard for how to live. And that's why I'm here. I had to come to model this for you because every single person who just picked up a stone is not worthy to throw it. So I had to come here because I knew you'd fail. I'm here to do it for you. And look, none of them, hey woman, look, none of them could do it. None of them could throw a stone. They're all gone, but you know who's still here and you know who is always still here? Me. When people wanted to throw stones at you, I never left. When you feel like things are going great and no one's trying to throw a stone at you, I'm still there. When you think things are terrible, I'm always good. When you think things are good, I'm still always good. I'm always the one who's been here. This phrase of until, until only Jesus was left, I feel like should just reverberate through our brains every single day because that is who he is for you. He is the standard of how to live and he's always there for you. Everybody could leave you, but Jesus is still there. You could have a million people in your circles, but Jesus is still there. Until only Jesus was left. This woman was at her lowest. She was at her maybe biggest failure. And oddly, this is where Jesus meets her. Because he had to make a point to listen, I'm the standard of this thing. I am the standard of life. I'm the standard of how to do it. Nobody can judge you at your lowest because I am the one who set the bar for the highest and you can't get there without me. So here I am until only was Jesus was left. But I think it's interesting that so often throughout scripture, he makes a point to meet people at their lowest. And the people who felt they were at their highest, he often has harsh words for now let me ask a question by show of hands in the room. How many of you would you quote unquote your testimony be that you met Jesus when you were really, really low? There's a reason that a, probably half the room and, and maybe if not more have that story and I, I think we can answer why. Because so often it takes hitting rock bottom to realize God was always your rock. So often we have to get low before finally we look up. Like, so often we have to recognize our failures to see our need for forgiveness. The model here is because it's so often how Jesus works. When we're low, because we've tried everything to get high, just like Michelle's testimony. We try everything to get high, it gets us all the way low, and then we realize there was only ever one way to get there to begin with. He is the standard, and his name is Jesus. So, Maybe then you are not in that space. I always like to hit everybody in the room because, again, some of you are like, well, like, what about me, Phil? I, I have been following this since a young age. Like, man, I accepted this when I was a kid. I've tried to do my best. I've really never rebelled like crazy. I don't have the testimony of going to college and being wild. I don't maybe have abuseful relationship histories. I've never done, you know, like, I've never been a crackhead, like, whatever. I've never hit that rock bottom. So, so like, what about me? This passage is maybe even more so for you. Let me tell you why. Let's, let's, if we would, conjecture a little bit. We don't know these things for sure, but again, we can look at context of like scripture and actually let it teach us things that maybe it doesn't directly say to us. So this woman is like fresh off the Feast of Tabernacles. That's John 7. We're studying this guy verse by verse, so I hope you're following along. Fresh off the Feast of Tabernacles, it's actually a continuation of that story. It doesn't say there's like a gap in time, like two, three days later, five weeks later. It doesn't say any of that. It's a, he went, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives where everybody else went home, and then this happens. What's the Feast of Tabernacles? It's an, an enormous Jewish celebration. So we can conjecture that this was a Jewish woman. On top of that, she's being held to Jewish standards. Is she not? If she wasn't Jewish, she's not going to be held to Jewish standards of getting stoned for committing adultery. So we can assume this woman is Jewish. What does that mean for us? It means that she has some type of faith. 
She has some type of religious belief. And at the time, a Jewish person would have known this from day one. As a kid, they had to memorize like the first five books of the Bible. How many of you have memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy? My hand's not going to go up either. It's hard to even read Leviticus. Don't judge me. Extend mercy. (laughs) Put your stones down. So why is this relevant then for maybe a person who hasn't had that rock bottom experience? Maybe you've just done okay in life and you've surfed on this and that to feel okay about yourself and, and nothing crazy's ever happened to you. Why is it as relevant for you? Well, this woman is a, a, like a living example that from probably day one, she had known some type of faith. She had followed the Jewish tradition. She knew a lot of, in fact, she probably knew more scripture than all of us. Yet, we see her here. How old was she? We don't know, but we know she was old enough to be married and commit adultery. Therefore, she had to have lived some years, right? She had to have a little bit of a life experience behind her. Why is that relevant? Because here she is amidst religious belief, amidst she had a marriage and she had lived some life and all this stuff. And what's happening? She's experiencing the mercy of God fresh again, maybe for the first time or the 30th time. Who knows? but it was still changing her life. She didn't necessarily have to be at rock bottom to experience the mercy of God. So I think it's relevant for some of us that have been doing this for a while, walking this out for a while. Some of us in the room, that faith has always been a thing for us, and if anything, we're sitting in here and we feel a little complacent because we're like, I don't really know what's next. I don't really know where to go from here. I feel like I'm doing the right things. I'm serving. I read my Bible, but I don't know. I don't know if I've been feeling him lately. And this woman can be a reminder for us that we still need his mercy every day. No matter how well we think we've done this, for how long we feel like we've done it, his mercy can always change us more. This woman had belief. She had faith. She had religion. Yet here she is having her life radically altered. And that can be the same for us. And I think there's two standards as we talk about that that Jesus sets here. One, mercy always precedes change. Two, mercy always leads to change. Mercy always precedes change. Mercy always leads to change. So often in scripture, Jesus uses this exact method, this exact formula, if you will. He meets people in their failure, in their brokenness, in their sin, loves them, gives them mercy and grace first, reminds them who they really are, and then points them to a life of holiness. What does he do at the very end of this passage? In fact, it's the second half of the last verse. He says, go and sin no more. He didn't walk up to this woman in her issues and her problems and say, hey, you're the worst. Go and sin no more. Also, I love you. No, because it doesn't work that way. Mercy always precedes change but then mercy always leads to change. I actually wanted to look up how many times the Bible says go and sin no more in his interaction with people. I couldn't find a number and I didn't want to make one up because that that wouldn't be truthful. It's a lot though. He says that a lot throughout the scriptures. He loves somebody, heals them, uh, uh, brings them out of something dark and then says, now go, leave your life of sin. Go, sin no more. Go and tell people about what you've experienced or go and don't tell people about what you've experienced. He said both of those things. Mercy comes before change, and change always follows encountering God's mercy. So let's jump back to the example of how we treat the culture, how we view the world, how our anger has boiled out over the last year, year and a half towards people and things that we don't agree with. Let's apply these principles that Jesus is giving us to how we treat other people. Like, politicians, people acting crazy, people we disagree with, the world, it, it, like the, the ungodliness of the world, which should make us angry, it should bother us, yet Jesus is here setting a standard saying, listen, you want change? Display mercy. Display the mercy you've been shown. You want holiness and godliness in the world? Awesome! Like, that's a good thing. We should want Jesus in the culture. We should want Jesus everywhere. It should bother us that things aren't going that way, but change follows mercy. Change follows mercy. Change will never follow a bunch of rule applying to people who don't even believe what we believe. In fact, Jeff says this all the time. Rules without relationship equal rebellion. There's like seven people who listen to Jeff. (laughs) He's not watching online, so he won't know. (laughs) It's part of the deal. (laughs) He's going to go back and watch the messages. I'm going to have a meeting soon. Listen, listen. It's good to want those things, but mercy 
is going to lead to change, not the other way around. And listen, when we expect change from those who haven't seen mercy, we're expecting life from something that's dead. We can't expect life to come from dead things, so we have to offer dead things what gives them life, which is the love of God. And that's the only order it will ever work. Bad expectations breed bad results. Display the mercy we've been shown and people will change. I just want to shout out my, my Grove squad. The Grove is our young adult ministry, and I'm not going to lie. Like, the, the amount that the Grove has been thriving in the past few months is a blessing from Jesus, and he has been showing up and doing his things in quite a few ways. But I just going to talk about two kids who have shown up and, and did not have good church experiences in the past. And by like, receiving grace and love and mercy, just by showing up to a place of people that love him, changed their life. First one, I'm not going to say his name. I don't know if he'd want me to. He walked in. He only came because his sister came. In fact, he was like an active, like, like, rebuker of the church. Thinks it's a joke, thinks what we do silly, all the above. Comes in, sits through one of our services. A bunch of people talk to him because we just love each other there, all right? It's amazing. And afterwards, he comes up to me after we study some passage or whatever, and he's like, can I tell you something? I was like, yes, sir, you may. I had my stone in my hand ready. Just kidding. I was like, yes, sir. And he was like, I've been to a lot of churches. I grew up in the church. This is the first place I've ever felt accepted. He's been back every single week since. I mean, come on. And not two weeks later, something like that, we had another new guy come. Actually, he might be in the room. I'm not sure. I'm not going to look and make eye contact. It'll be awkward. I didn't ask him permission. Just like a couple weeks ago, he comes up to me, and, and he was like, I just want to thank you for something. And again, this is an extension of the Grove. I just happen to be the person he talked to, and it's Jesus more specifically. He's like, like you know why I've kept coming back? I was like, no. I mean, hopefully because it's awesome. <laughs> and he's like, well, because I've been to a bunch of other groups. I've been to all these things or whatever. But the minute I walked into this room, I could tell people cared about me. That's what makes people change. That's what brings people in. We can never just yell what's supposed to happen in the world, what it's supposed to look like, and expect people to want to come be around us. Love people. Care about, genuinely care about them. Show mercy where others are condemning. And I promise people are going to flock to you because of Jesus in you. And things are going to start happening. He's calling us not to live a perfect life because we can't. When he says go and sin no more, he's not saying don't ever sin again. Again, that's why the NIV says leave your life of sin. What he's saying is since you've experienced my mercy, now change can happen. So stop walking in dark because you're now a child of the light. And when we inevitably fail... We praise Jesus because he sets the standard for us. And then the beautiful last part of this, and we're going to go into singing a song where we just thank Jesus for who he is. comes from verses 4 and 5. They had pulled this woman out, full circle back, and they said, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, in religion, in the book you wrote, Moses commanded us to stone such a person. So what do you say? And he, he was trying to, they were trying to trap him to accuse him because they were playing for the wrong team in this instance. And then what Jesus does tells us this, where punishment is due, Jesus was made guilty. Where punishment is due, Jesus was made guilty. In, in point one, we said where we condemn, Jesus extends mercy. Why does the Bible, the book of God, like, like the word of God, alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, why does it harp on the word condemnation so much? And specifically, why did Jesus and his life constantly be surrounded by phrases like no condemnation? Why? And let me, let me back it up a little bit. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. John 3.17-18, this is fresh after, the most popular verse in the whole Bible, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he came and gives one only son forever, believe in us, not for us, have eternal life. And then it says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. He follows the biggest, most important, massive summation of the gospel that we all have memorized, whether or not we even believe it. And the next sentence says, I ain't sending him to condemn you, though. But in order to save it, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. Jesus not only didn't come to condemn us, so if you felt that or you feel religious condemnation, just get rid of it because that's nowhere in the Bible to be found. Not only did he not come to do that, but he's like, listen, you condemned yourself. We were already condemned. That's why I had to come. 
From all the way back in the garden, Adam and Eve, y'all messed this up real bad, so you've been born into sin to the decisions we choose to make on a daily basis, the good days to the bad days. We've condemned ourselves as guilty in front of a perfect and holy God, and the entire message of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and his like amazingness is that he didn't come here to condemn more. He came to relieve the condemnation. He came to get rid of it. He came to offer life and life to the full. Ephesians 2, verses 4 to 5 says, But God, rich in his mercy because of his great love for us, made us alive in Christ when we were once dead in our transgressions. But God, rich in mercy. Man, check it out. The, the Pharisees here, they wanted to punish this woman there was punishment due. Jesus even acknowledges like, you're right, she deserves punishment. But knowing what was coming for him a day or two or a couple weeks later, the whole reason he came to earth, knowing what he came to do, and he sent this message here in this passage so specifically, look what he did if we didn't catch it. He physically straightened up and got between the woman and her punishment. She was due punishment, and Jesus physically got in the way. What does this say to us? What, what is this ominous of? What is this a precursor for? Because Jesus knew that just a couple days, weeks later, he was going to get up on a cross to get in the way of the punishment of all of us. So, so maybe you read this type of passage, and you're like, well, I haven't done that or I haven't been at the lowest of lows, or I'm not that religious, or I don't know how much this relates to me. All Jesus is doing here is pointing to what he was about to do. He says, watch this, watch this. You want to condemn so bad. You want to give punishment to where you think it belongs so bad. You want to be the judge so bad. Well, I'm going to stand up and say, okay, go ahead and throw a stone if you've never sinned. Oh, you can't do it? Cool. I'm going to stand up real quick, show you who can do it. It's your boy, until only Jesus was left stood up in front of her punishment where punishment was due, Jesus got in the way. And then he goes to the cross and for every single person in the room, if you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, Romans 10, 9 says, just believe in your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he did what he did and you'll be saved. He says, if that's you, if that's what you believe, and if, you, hey, if you've never said that in the room, you can say it right now. It doesn't have to look like this big churchy altar call where you pray a specific prayer that you repeat after me. Nah, it's you and Jesus in your own head. He knows what you're saying. He knows your heart. You can say that right now for the first time or the 793rd time. And then for you, the punishment that was due has made guilty on Jesus. The punishment that should and, and deservedly been on me and you was put on Jesus. God looked down at everything we've ever done wrong and said, you deserve it, but I'm making my son guilty. And Jesus stood up, he straightened up, and he took it willingly. The entire passage that we're reading here points to who Jesus was, what, what he did that we could have never done, and it's just another reason, if there aren't already infinite reasons, to praise him for how absolutely amazing he is, that every word of, of this good book correlates together to point to the single moment of Jesus dying on a cross and raising back up and ascending to heaven to wait for us and intercede on our behalf till we get there with him, and all we got to do is believe. He died a brutal death on a cross, bearing the weight of all that punishment, bearing the weight of all those stones, bearing the weight of all the sin, the full wrath of God bore on him. Listen, if the full wrath of God was put on Jesus, how much wrath is left for you? And if any wrath was left over somehow, then Jesus' sacrifice was worthless. But he took all of it. That means you can walk out of here knowing, trusting, and believing there is zero wrath of God left for you no matter what you think about it. Why'd he do it? So you could be free. So you could have life and life to the full. And that one day you could spend eternity forever with him. And he willingly did it and thought of you Also, you could be free. I'm gonna ask that we stand and I'm gonna ask my prayer team to go ahead and come forward for those that are in the room. This passage is a reminder of this. Jesus is everything we aren't. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything we've ever needed. He's merciful when we're condemning, 
He meets the standard where we've failed, and he chose to be made guilty for the punishment that we deserved. And that's why we praise him. And when someone asks you, like, why do you go to church, fam? Like, you weird. Are you kidding me? I'm weird? Do you know what Jesus did for you? Why aren't you in church? That's why we praise him. That's why we show up here. That's why we're weird and throw our hands up in the air. That's why we get on our knees and pray. That's why we love people who don't deserve love. That's why we sacrifice our time when we could be doing other things. That's why we talk too long on a Sunday because it's really hard to stop talking about Jesus because he's just that good. Come on, come on. And the most important thing is that's why we love him. And we're gonna sing Jesus, we love you right now. And let's sing it like we mean it. We hope you enjoyed this message. You can find more like it on our website under sermons. To keep up to date with our sermon series, hit the subscribe button in your podcast host and follow our social media pages. Just search for GFC Shrewsbury on the platform of your choice. If you're looking to connect with us further, then you can email us at connect at gfcshrewsbury.org. We will be back next week with another message. We hope to see you again soon.